Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. House of Hate by Alison V. Harding Ambrose Timothy was seemingly a man of meekness, who seldom found the courage to satisfy even that sort of curiosity that is neither feminine nor morbid, but natural. Take the house next door, for instance. It's fenced-in secretiveness, its very appearance and influence on the surrounding countryside, and especially on Mr. Timothy's adjoining bungalow, were enough to make a peace-loving man become quite inquisitive. But none of this seemed to bother Mr. Timothy, as he limped around, puttering in his neat beds of larkspur, roses, snapdragons, and zinnias. Timothy confided to the real estate agent that he had worked long and hard for retirement, and a modest sum of money. Now these were his, with all the peacefulness their attainment implied. His bungalow was as newly his as his garden beds. There was no use making trouble over the habits, however eccentric, of next-door neighbours. Besides, what could he complain about? Of the way they treated the little golden-haired boy, or the noises at night— he couldn't tell a local magistrate that he just didn't like that woman in black or her coarse male companion. Anyway, they were probably people of influence and power. Timothy reflected that he would keep up the grounds better if they were his, but perhaps they were not fond of flowers and a nice lawn. This last as though Mr. Timothy could not conceive of anybody being so indifferent. All this, of course, was before he found the Red Diary— half buried in the soft earth of his flower-bed. Three months ago, when Timothy had come here, he recalled that the enterprising young real-estate lady had steered him away from the side of his prospective property that bordered the strange Paquin house, its forbidding aloofness protected by a high iron fence. Ambrose Timothy, fresh from the city, admitted that he was infatuated with the bungalow and the surrounding flower-beds, and had only a casual look beyond the one acre and one half that comprised his heaven. "'Oh, them,' the young real estate agent had explained airily, in answer to his question about the neighbours. "'Just the Paquin house. They keep to themselves. A woman and a young boy who is not very well, and some sort of companion, I think. I don't believe they'll bother you. The woman is a chemist. Her husband was a famous doctor, we hear. He died long before they came here. They have to keep pretty close watch on the young boy, but—she added hastily—that's why the fence. You won't be annoyed. Mr. Timothy remarked absently that the Paquin house looked something like a huge dragon, waiting to devour something or somebody. After which remark, the young real estate girl laughed and tactfully led him away to the flower-beds again, remarking, "'Oh, Mr. Timothy, you're amusing.' Now, is everything all right? And Ambrose Timothy, after commenting that forget-me-nots would look nice outside the porch, signed up. His first run-in with the Paquin household came one warm afternoon, when he was startled by a sudden eruption of earth near a bush on his side of the iron fence that circumferenced the next-door grounds. Ah, said Mr. Timothy, dropping his trowel. Then before his eyes a hand appeared— and an arm, and finally a sharp head and face. "'My word!' 
said Mr. Timothy, hurrying forward toward the sunny-haired boy who had virtually erupted in his front yard. Shaking himself like a cocker-spaniel just from a water-chase, the boy raised his finger to his lips and shook his head significantly. "'Yes, by all means,' murmured Mr. Timothy. "'Oh, that was very interesting, the way you came through there, young man.' The boy was blond, with dark shadows under intelligent eyes. His body was thin and small-boned. He was, Mr. Timothy calculated, about sixteen years of age. This must be the young man from next door, the young man who was not so well. Timothy's eyes narrowed, as he noticed the angry red and purple bruises on the slim forearms. The boy came near to Timothy, and stood looking at him, his sharp, peaked features appealing. "'Well, well,' said Timothy, "'I guess we are neighbours, young man.' The boy continued to eye him appraisingly. Timothy said hastily, "'Well, now, don't be afraid of me, young man.' Then, "'Here, what are you doing?' The boy had gone over to one of the flower-beds, and was sketching something with a pointed stick he had picked up. Timothy came over and looked down at the words rudely marked in the soft earth. Pencil. Paper. Mr. Timothy leaned over and looked again. The boy looked back toward the house with a look of apprehension and furtiveness that impressed Mr. Timothy. It was obvious the lad was a mute. All right, youngster. I don't know what the game is, but I'll get you what you want. Timothy trundled into his bungalow, and came out with a pad and the stub of a pencil. These the boy took, and began to write feverishly. When he had finished, he handed the note to Mr. Timothy. Ah! Timothy accepted the piece of paper much in the manner of a man receiving a young child's first poem. He looked at the note, and his eyes sharpened as he read— Get writing-book and pencils, please. I am dumb. Must have right away. Stick them in hole under garden fence. But—but—' Ambrose Timothy stuttered as the boy, still carrying the pencil and pad obtained for him by Timothy, was scuttling away. Before Timothy could find any words, the boy had burrowed under the fence, and was busily engaged on the other side, smoothing over the ground. As Timothy watched— the young boy barely finished this, and turned toward the house, with the pad and pencil now concealed behind his back, when a tall woman swept around the corner of the old house, and spied him. "'Ah, there you are, Martin. Up to your old tricks, eh?' The woman came closer, as the boy slunk along like a dog, anticipating a beating. Evidently, she hadn't spotted Timothy peering through the iron-grilled fence. The woman stopped. Martin stopped, too— his hands behind his back. "'Martin!' the woman screeched. "'Martin! What is it you have behind your back?' The boy's only answer was a hopeless shrug. As the woman advanced on him, the boy edged away. Then the woman called at the top of her voice, "'Rippick! Hey, Rippick! Here!' There was a harsh male answering call, and then from the house came a man who at first look appeared to be a servant. He had on clothes that appeared too small for him. His arms crept down from the sleeves of his coat, and hung, almost self-consciously, down by his knees. His chest and shoulders were immense. "'Yeah?' Mr. Timothy heard him answer. Certainly this was not at all the way country estate servants should reply to their mistresses. 
Rippick. The boy here has something behind his back. He's up to his old tricks, Rippick. Yeah, was the laconic answer. Timothy edged nearer the fence as the two elders closed in on the young boy. Finally, the man, with a quick jump, grabbed the boy and forced his arm into sight with a cruel wrench. The pad and pencil came to view. It seemed a pretty brutal way to treat a sick boy, Timothy reflected as he watched, edging further forward until his face was nearly pressed against the railing separating the two properties. But it was no more than he would expect from these two. Paper and a pencil you got, eh? said Rippick in his longest speech to date. Then, with an effortless cuff, he sent the boy reeling to the ground. The woman had the pencil and pad, after scrutinizing them, and was stuffing them into her dress, when she noticed Timothy watching on the other side of the fence. She said something in a low voice to the man, and he turned like a cat to also stare at their spectator. Somewhat embarrassedly, Ambrose Timothy pulled himself to his feet, and stood there grinning sheepishly. He cleared his throat. "'Hello,' he said. The woman came over toward him, her face sharp and questioning. "'I'm Mrs. Paquin. You live next door now?' "'Yes, ma'am,' Timothy bowed. "'I guess you gave Martin the paper and pencil. It was a statement rather than a question. Yes, ma'am, I did. I'm sorry if that was wrong.' The woman looked back to where the boy was now picking himself off the ground from Rippick's blow. The barrel-chested man was standing over the lad with one huge hand clutching the boy's slender arm. She turned back to Timothy, and smiled in a manner meant to be reassuring and neighborly. "'Well, you see, Mr. Uh, Timothy. Mr. Timothy, the boy's not very well. In fact, I'm sorry to say he is, well, you know—' and she tapped her head significantly. Timothy nodded gravely. "'I'm sorry,' he said simply. "'They don't like him to have certain things. It, um, excites him to write, so we have to keep all sorts of writing materials away from him on their orders.' Timothy nodded again. "'So please don't ever let him have anything of that nature again. Although I am sure he will beseech you with his eyes, and Martin has beseeching eyes.' The woman turned with a smile on her face. The boy, still held by Rippick, was standing there, just looking at them. She called, "'Bring Martin over here, Rippick.' The man responded, and led the lad over to the fence. "'The young lad was born speechless. I adopted him,' the woman explained. "'This man is Rippick. He helps me,' she said the last, almost as an afterthought. Timothy nodded acknowledgment. So then, Mr. Timothy, never, never put anything through the fence for the boy again. Ah, so she didn't know the youngster had found a way of burrowing under the fence. Well, he certainly wouldn't tell on the poor young fellow. That would probably call for another cuff from Rippick. The woman surveyed Timothy closely, and then said again, Remember, nothing through the fence, eh? She smiled, as though sealing the pack. All the while they had been talking, the boy's eyes had never once left Timothy's face—never once, and as the woman herself had said, Martin had such beseeching eyes. Trying to get the conversation on a pleasanter subject, Timothy launched out enthusiastically, "'You know, Mrs. Paquin, you've got splendid grounds for flowers. 
I should think you'd want to experiment a bit with them. Flowers? Experiment with flowers? She threw back her head and laughed and laughed. Well, I meant, said Timothy lamely, that it's such fun to create things. I know I'm just here from the city, and I find that it is really splendid to get out into a garden and putter around. I should think you'd want to in your place. He pointed proudly at his own neat beds. Then, amazed at his own boldness, Timothy stopped. "'We keep busy,' said Mrs. Paquin, after a look at his garden, and, bowing stiffly, she turned away, an amused smile on her face. As the three walked away from the fence, Timothy noticed that on one occasion they looked back, and he could hear Rippick's voice contemptuously say something about flowers. That had been Timothy's first and only run-in with the people next door. Remembering the boy's beseeching look, though, he had, on that same day when he went to town for provisions, bought a red-bound diary, and placed it with a bunch of lead pencils in the hole under the fence. And the following morning, when he had looked, the diary and pencils were gone. For a time, he feared that Mrs. Paquin or the coarse Rippick had found them, but a few days later the boy had appeared and had waved a hand in appreciation. It was several weeks later that Timothy had been gardening, and had come on the red-bound diary. Evidently, it had been thrown over the fence. It was the same one he had put under the rail for the boy. It was half buried in the soft earth of his garden, and now there was writing in it. Timothy had opened up the book, and had begun to read. Finally, he retired inside the house, and his fingers drummed nervously as he reread the words scribbled there. It was plain, as he had suspected, that the boy was a virtual prisoner in the house, and that horrible things were about to happen, or were happening. Timothy's eyes glinted. Now was the time for action. He would go next door. It was the only thing to do. It was late afternoon, as Timothy went out on the road and pushed the bell-button on the huge old-fashioned gate that guarded the frontage of the property. He rang several times, and then when there was no answer, he shouldered at the grill. It was open, and Timothy slowly went in, and walked hesitantly toward the house. He reached the front door, and let out a loud halloo. There was no answering sound. Despite the warm air, a chill struck Timothy, as he raised the great brass knocker. Finally, in answer to his pounding, Mrs. Paquin came to the door. She was, as always when he had seen her, dressed in severe black. She looked distraught, her face a tableau of evil. She stood for a moment, regarding him. Well? Mrs. Paquin, there's something wrong I'm afraid I've done, Timothy blurted out. It's about the young fellow, Martin. Mrs. Paquin stepped aside, and said— You'd better come in. I can't wait out here with you. As Timothy followed her into the dark old house, he noticed for the first time that over the darkness of her dress she wore what looked like a tourniquet on her arm. He followed her down a stone stairway into a cavernous cellar. As soon as she reached this room, she sank down on a pallet in the corner, and said again, What is it, Mr. Timothy? What about Martin? 
Ambrose Timothy noticed that Rippick was in the corner too, grinning wolfishly at him. His powerful forearm was bare, and just over the elbow was the black band of a tourniquet, twisted tight. The room smelled strangely from must and chemicals, and the wood-burning fireplace back of Rippick. Mrs. Paquin noticed Timothy's eyes and spoke up. We've had a little accident. We do some of our work in this cellar, and it's infested with spiders, some of them of a poisonous nature. You're not familiar with medical methods of treating spider bites. Ah, well, of course not. However, we have adequate equipment here, I think. Rippick grinned wolfishly from the corner in which he sat. How's the flowers? A thin trickle of saliva ran from the corner of the man's mouth. Timothy answered, Doing nicely, thank you. Then he turned back to Mrs. Paquin, who was filling a hypodermic needle. Maybe I should not have come just now. You people are ill. Mrs. Paquin shook her head and looked up at him. No, Mr. Timothy, if it's about Martin, I want to hear what you have to say. Ambrose Timothy went on. Some time ago I got a diary for the boy. I know after you told me what you did that I shouldn't have done so, but, well, I did. He wanted one, so— Fear came into Mrs. Paquin's eyes at that. She shook her head. Rippick made an angry noise in the corner. "'What's become of it?' rapped Mrs. Paquin. "'I don't know,' Timothy lied. "'We found no diary here,' the woman in black snarled, with a look at Rippick, who nodded back. "'Well, then, what does it matter?' The boy evidently misplaced it, and Timothy spread his hands. "'You cursed fool, you—' Rippick got laboriously to his feet— Timothy noted that the man's face bore signs of some deep physiological upheaval. Despite this, the heavy man came forward menacingly. Timothy started backward. But Mrs. Paquin was still mistress of the situation and her house. Stop, Rippick! Go back, idiot! Then she turned to Timothy. Of course it doesn't matter, Mr. Timothy. Martin is utterly mad. He can't write. Mrs. Paquin bowed to Timothy. He could see that she, too, was in a perturbed state of mind and body, for, as he went up the stairs from the basement laboratory, he heard her begin to laugh—crazy, idiotic laughter that Rippick joined in. Timothy went up the stairway two at a time, and then outside into the light again, feeling like a reprieved man. He moved hastily to the gate, and through it, and then around to his own place. Ambrose Timothy did not sleep well that night. There was a lot to think about, and then there were noises from the house next door—noises of bumping and thumping, cries and yells, and unholy bursts of laughter. Mrs. Paquin was up, as was Rippick, for on several occasions when the noise drove him to the windows of the bungalow, he could see them standing silhouetted against the bare windows of the old house next door. From the distance, it looked as though they were fighting or dancing insanely. Once he thought he heard Martin's voice raised in terror, but he might have been mistaken. As soon as it was light, Timothy went over to the fence and peered through. There was nothing to be seen. Everything was as quiet as if the house were unoccupied. 
It was that afternoon that a grocer's delivery truck stopped outside, and a boy went in. Timothy watched as he walked to the gate and rang the bell. Then he walked up to the house. He disappeared within, and reappeared a few minutes later, running. Timothy yelled, "'What's up there?' The boy redoubled his speed at the voice, looking startled and sideways. "'Something's awful wrong in there, mister. I don't know just what, but something terrible is the matter. I'm getting the sheriff.' And with a smashing of gears and a burst of speed, the vehicle went roaring down the road as fast as the terrified delivery boy could make it go. Timothy watched until the car disappeared down the desolate highway. He thought of the diary, and dropped it back of his pillow. He puttered around absently in his garden, until the delivery truck, leading a large official car, drew up to the Paquin house a few minutes later. Out jumped the grocer boy, all importance now, and a large, florid-faced man. They disappeared up the path to the house. The delivery boy came out a few minutes later, and spotted Timothy. "'Hey, mister, the sheriff wants to talk to you.' Timothy walked over obediently. The sheriff was standing at the foot of the stairs, looking up, and in his hand was a long-barreled revolver. He turned as Timothy stood inside the front door. "'Delivery boy said you were next-door neighbor. Wanted to know what you made of all this. We've got a couple of completely mad people upstairs. I can't even go near them. I'll have to call the county home and get some of those boys to come over.' "'I don't know much, Sheriff,' Timothy said, shaking his head. As his eyes grew accustomed to the light, he noticed bloodstains on the floor on all sides, and going up the stairs. It was these unmistakable red smears everywhere that must have startled the delivery boy, Timothy surmised. The sheriff hummed, and then went to the phone. He called the county home. Timothy looked furtively around while he was calling. The question was, where was the young boy? The delivery boy stared fascinatedly at the bloodstains. So suddenly that the three jumped came a burst of sudden noise from upstairs, a screech of voices so outré and terrible in quality that it sounded like the laughter of demons in some horrible, feverish nightmare. The sheriff, who now introduced himself as Ethan Hodgins, mopped his face. Don't like it but I guess I'll have to go upstairs again. Crazy people is more trouble than they're worth, I've always said. Well, let's go. The delivery boy looked eager, but uncertain. Timothy hesitated. You mean you want us to come up with you? Just a bit of the way, Hodgins urged. His smile was forced. If they start throwing things, you can back me up. Timothy started up the stairs behind the sheriff with the young delivery boy last. They went up slowly, and with each step, it sounded to Timothy as if they were approaching the mad convolutions of another world. The sheriff had tiptoed to the landing now, and was nearing a door that stood at the end of a hall. He paused outside for a second, and then gently turned the knob, allowing the door to swing silently open, allowing a view of what was within. The delivery boy had pushed ahead of Hodgins now, and was just behind the sheriff when the door slid open. The three looked in. Timothy, with his image of the two clearly in his mind, 
was the one most shocked. The two creatures in the room were surely not human. They were pawing and playing over certain objects in the centre of the room. They themselves were dishevelled, their clothes torn and ragged. Mrs. Paquin's black dress was hanging in strips from her, and Rippick was as ragged. As the three watched, Mrs. Paquin lashed out at Rippick with something, and the curses and screams started again. He retaliated with a yell of anger and hit heavily at the woman. Just at the moment Sheriff Hodgin stepped into the room with his long-barreled gun pointed, Timothy made out the identity of those objects. They were, God forbid, the dismembered parts of a human body, the golden hair on one round glob of matter that lay on the floor like an out-of-shape soccer ball, was too much for the delivery boy at Timothy's side. His knees gave way beneath him. It was not hard to get rid of his bungalow. It was so nice and cosy, and Timothy had worked so hard on the flower gardens. And so Timothy moved away with all his belongings and the red-bound diary. The diary was very precious. Timothy, although not a curious or inquisitive man, used to read it overnights. It was interesting, as anything written by an idiot would be, and Ambrose Timothy would smile sadly at this thought, for the author had certainly not been an idiot. Not that he didn't remember it almost by heart now. It started out with this entry. I know now that the black lady means to kill me. I don't know how or when. At least I don't know for sure. I am able to write because a man has moved in next door who has been kind enough to me to get this book and some pencils. I had a hole under the fence into his property, and the lady in Rippick haven't found it yet. The next entry read, I think that I am going to be used the way they used animals. Something goes on in the cellar that they have never let me see. I have known since they brought me here from the school that they were interested in some form of science, but I never have been sure just what type. I have seen books around on the glands. I think they experiment with glands. And I have heard them whispering and laughing about me. I think the man next door is my only chance. I tried to escape several times long ago, but I can't get far. I am always returned here, and Rippick beats me. It is true I cannot speak, but I was educated well at the school. I am not crazy, as they tell everybody. I suppose all of this is silly, that I am counting so much on this neighbour. He is a little fellow with a limp and a funny wrinkled face like a mask, and seems only interested in his gardening. The first day I burrowed through into his grounds he looked so startled— but he finally gave me a pad and some pencils. Rippick and Mrs. Paquin caught me as I got back in the grounds, and Rippick hit me and took the stuff away. Then the lady took me over to the wall and make me stand in front of this man who does so much gardening. He said his name was Ambrose Timothy. I have found out something very interesting. The lady took me downstairs today and told me that I was to have a part in a very wonderful experiment. She said it was so important that she hoped I realized that whether I lost my life or not, it didn't matter. She laughed then, and said that she was telling me this because she knew I couldn't talk and tattle on them. Then she said that her husband had been a very famous doctor, who had been perfecting a spectacular glandular substance that would revolutionize medicine. 
he realized he had discovered the true secret of insanity caused by glandular imbalance. That's just what she said. But he was such an old dote, she said, that he hadn't had the sense to realize what could be done with such a medicine. Rippick, this creature who cuffs me around, had also been a chemist. I'll bet he wasn't much good. But he and Mrs. Paquin had got along very well. She had approached her husband and said that she and Rippick wanted to buy him out, that they had great ideas for the medicine. Mrs. Paquin has told me that they found out a good deal about the doctor's formula, but not quite enough. They would be everlastingly rich if they could find the missing link, though. There was an argument, and Rippick had nearly killed Dr. Paquin trying to get certain facts out of him. They put acid on his face and legs— then they seated him in an old car, and she smiles as she tells me this, and let it roll off a bridge. That was the end of Dr. Paquin, she says. Nobody ever found out, and she got his money. And she keeps repeating that after all I don't matter, because I can never tell anybody what I know. And that is true. They keep all writing materials away from me. I know that Rippick wanted to beat up that man next door who was kind enough to give me the writing materials, but I have been able to get this, and that is what counts. Another entry. A strange thing happened today. I know that Rippick and Mrs. Paquin are about to try their latest gland experiment on me, but I was out in the garden near the fence when this man, Timothy, came over to me. He said something to me. I don't quite understand, but I took what he gave me. It was a bottle. It was all very strange, but I think he means to help me. It was easy to get hold of one of the empty hypodermic syringes, fill it, and hide it. Then, when Mrs. Paquin was sleeping one time, I stole over to her and plunged the needle deep into the muscle of her arm. I ran as she woke up. There was just enough in the bottle for me to fill the syringe again. I just finished— when Rippick came running in answer to her calls. I was able to jab the needle into his arm and push down the plunger before he cuffed me to the floor. Rippick and Mrs. Paquin whispered to each other and then went downstairs after cuffing me again. They screamed at me to tell them what I had in the syringe, but I wagged my head absently. Then they locked me up. At the first chance I am going to throw this out the window over the wall into Mr. Timothy's place. He will find it, and will read what I have written. Rippick and Mrs. Paquin are slowly going mad. They have put tourniquets on their arms, and they cut and probe their own flesh. I have written because I hope somebody will find this. I know they are going to kill me, but I know now that they will go insane, worse than death. I did what Mr. Timothy said. It was fascinating to read this thought the man called Ambrose Timothy, as he lay on the bed and fondled the book. Timothy sighed. Finally, he limped to the corner and burned the diary carefully, as he had a paper with minute figures and equations on it. Back in bed, he turned his wrinkled, scarred face to the wall. It was too bad about the boy, but then his own accident long ago had been too bad and for the first time in nine years, Dr. Paquin slept peacefully. <laughs>